Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, Mary DeMuth returns to the podcast to discuss her new book, The Most Misunderstood Women of the Bible, with our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick and Dr. Beth Felker-Jones. Mary is a prolific writer, having authored more than 40 books. In this latest release, she looks at the lives of misunderstood biblical women we may have skipped over. Women like Eve, Bathsheba, Tamar, the Proverbs 31 woman, and Mary of Magdala, among others. Women not so different from ourselves. She invites the reader to step into the lives of these women and learn something from their stories. Hi, Mary. Thanks so much for joining us again. It's so great to be yeah, here. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. We're always so excited. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, good to have you with us, Mary. Thank you. We're excited. We're both excited to hear about your new book uh, with the provocative title, uh, The Most Misunderstood Women in the Bible. Uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, why, why, what prompted you to write the book? And by the way, I should say it's coming out the end of March. So we want our listeners to be looking for that. Yeah. So I, one of the things that I realized in the past couple of years, and I think um, we've all kind of experienced this is one of the deepest pains that we can walk through is when someone misunderstands us. And more than just like not understanding what we're trying to say, but misunderstands our hearts or assigns evil motives to us when, when there aren't any. And, you know, of course, we're called to examine our hearts. And of course, if someone confronts me, I'm going to go back to the Lord and, and check. But what happens when someone just projects something on you and you don't know how to respond? And so that kind of situation, of course, happened to me because it happens to everybody and I thought there's got to be a way to navigate this with joy, to get through on the other side. Um, and so I, I decided that I would look at how other women in the Bible and the biblical narrative worked through their own misunderstanding. And then I found throughout the research, and of course, I'm not a scholar, so my research is not as deep as perhaps yours will be. But But what I found was that there were two things going on in the text. There was that they were misunderstood in their context, but that we, when we come to their stories, we misunderstand them pretty easily as well. And so what I wanted to do was just kind of take all of that, create their stories based on research and scriptural evidence, and then unpack their stories for the reader to help you navigate the pain of being misunderstood. Yeah. And, you know, I think we seem to be living in a misunderstood culture, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, you talk about projection and boy, I think social media certainly allows us to uh, imagine all kinds of things and even say them sometimes with the anonymity that that we think kind of shields us from responsibility. But yeah, how do you think your book will will help uh, women today kind of wrestle with this misunderstood culture? That's a great question. And weirdly, the first thing that popped in my mind was that actually what will really help us all is revival and, um, and just being revived in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and to have our hearts softened by empathy, to be able to step into the shoes of another. Um, 
the more all of us as Christ followers do that, the less we're going to have this kind of chronic misunderstanding and this projection. And and I, I do believe that a lot of what's going on in social media today because of the um, anonymity, say that 10 times fast, um, is that we have forgotten the image of God on other people. We have lost the Imago Dei in the way that we treat um pixels, we perceive them as pixels, they actually are people. So my hope is that this book would unpack not only our side of, okay, I've been misunderstood, now what do I do? But also to examine our hearts and to begin to have a sanctification journey of not jumping to conclusions so quickly and not retaliating so quickly when we perceive a wrong in somebody else. Oh, that's a very, that is a very good word. Um, in your title, before we jump into the actual uh, text in your type and the women that you mentioned from the Bible, you do talk about thriving, like how in studying uh, these, these women and reflecting theologically that we'll be able to thrive. Can, can you talk a little bit about what, what thriving even means today both in the world and then also what it should mean for believers. Yeah. So, I mean, we can talk about what flourishing and thriving is in a community, which is unrelated to the church, but just what does it look like to have a thriving community? And I think there you still go back to Judeo-Christian principles of realizing the image of God or the preciousness of each human being. And when we realize that, then we will do things to make that particular population thrive. But as I, if I'm just going to be really honest, I was thinking a lot about this today, um, about how my um, personally my emotions about a situation can go up and down and up and down. And if I'm riding on the waves of my emotions, I'm not thriving. Um, I've had to learn to retrain my mind uh, to to remind myself that my emotions are not related necessarily. Um, they can be real, but they may not necessarily be rooted in the reality or truth of God's word. I can feel hurt, but the truth is, yes, I can hurt, but I still have a God who loves me and is for me and is with me. And so my journey has been learning to not give my emotions so much credit that it causes me to, to be sidelined um, in my joy and so therefore, I think thriving has a lot more to do with not a happy feeling, but the truth of who we are in Christ and growing in maturity and that identity that we have. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That seems like a lifelong process to me of uh, going on that kind of journey. No, only today. Yeah, I'm I, all fixed. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah. Um, I think as Christians, we sometimes downplay the truth that God wants us to thrive because we know that thriving as Christians may look different from what the world defines as thriving, right? Um, and I, I really love that you're encouraging us to lean into that truth, right? Jesus promises us abundant life. And uh, I think you know, thriving and abundance have fit together there. Do you, are there ways that the differences between uh, Christian thriving and worldly thriving um, uh, make it this hard for us to think about? You know, I'm, I'm one of those people who probably reads way too many self-help books. And I'm, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm coming to the end of that cycle in my life because um, in reading this recent one that I'm reading, it's, it is definitely about worldly thriving and how to 
do all the stuff, but let me just say I'm exhausted after mm. I read a self-help book because it's empty. I am an inconsistent human being. I like, for instance, this year I was going to run every day for 365 days. Well, day 10, I got shin splints <laughs> and I can't run 365 days. And so there's the limitation to all of our striving and all of us, you know, working really hard. And I think that's the difference between worldly thriving, all those self-help books versus this internal thriving of just having joy when I can't run 365 days, when I do have a, a bad disease, when my family is broken, it's such a different level of thriving that's not based on circumstances, but it's based on the kindness and that compassion that God gives us. And again, so that's a retraining of the mind. But I think the, at least, I don't know if I answered the question well, but one is based on circumstances. And if all my ducks are in, the row, in a row, the other is based on the generosity of our kind God. Yeah, you could almost say self-powered versus grace-powered, right? You could, all, yes, and you should. You should write a book called that. <laughs> um, as you talk about the project, uh, I, I think it's really interesting how you're asking us to connect um, the experiences of women in the Bible with our own experiences. Uh, I'm wondering, are there big picture ways that women are misunderstood differently than men are misunderstood uh, in terms of Bible reading and in terms of how we live the Christian life? That's a huge question. Um, Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure I'll answer it perfectly. Um, I, I do. I think that um, we women are in the marketplace and in the church are often, um, there's a lot of expectations placed on us to do everything really, really well. And, you know, we see it in, in the marketplace in terms of like women's salaries and things like that, that um, we're not necessarily appreciated for our expertise. We have to jump through a lot more hoops. Um, I even think about like uh, my daughter considering going to seminary and just the the comments that she will receive from others saying, well, what in the world would you do with a seminary degree because you're a girl and can't do stuff? And that kind of stuff is very frustrating for women because um, we have been given gifts from the Lord that sometimes are outward expressive gifts. And I have been one throughout my life as a Christ follower and as a Christian leader in the church um, have been very frustrated and thwarted simply because of my sex. And that has been deeply frustrating to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know many, many women who share that experience. Yeah. But I hope I've, you yeah. know, I hope all of us in this conversation, and I know all of us in this conversation, we view ourselves as pioneers. So we're like hacking through the underbrush and the thorns and the thickets for the sake of people like my daughter, who, you know, is 29 years old, and she's got a brilliant mind. And, and I want her to be able to walk into the church and have more freedom than I ever had. Hmm. No, that would be that would be lovely. And um, I'm just going to put a plug in here for Northern Seminary. Yes. She'd be most welcome. She and all her friends. I'm going to tell her <laughs> for sure. A little bit of absolutely uh, advertising here. It's good to work plan. in a place that's committed to the thriving of women for the kingdom. Yes, and that's right. Amen. That's absolutely. 
Um, well, we, we talked a little bit, we tried to narrow down the, the number of biblical women that we would talk about on the podcast, because you talk about a lot of them in your book. One that rose to the surface as, as we were chatting before uh, Serene pressed record is Bathsheba. Now, you're a very uh, bold woman to take on Bathsheba and the misunderstandings. I don't know <laughs> how much time do you have, right, for this. But please talk, talk a little bit about what you found in terms of misunderstanding and Bathsheba, especially her the story of her uh, in Second Samuel and her encounter with uh, King David. Well, she has a particular, holds a particular interest to me, as does the second Tamar, in that I am a sexual abuse survivor. And so I think part of the problem with reading Bathsheba is that so many times the scholars that have looked at her have been through people who haven't had that experience. So their hermeneutic is is without that experience, so they can't see into the text with um, the eyes of a survivor. So as I look at the text, and I just am looking at the text, although, of course, I did research around her life, um, I don't see, uh, in fact, this just happened recently. Someone sent me their book to endorse, and I got to a chapter because the person was talking about David in their book, got to the chapter about Bathsheba, and in it, it said something like, um, she had equal culpability uh, in the, in what happened to her, she was a seductress on the roof. And I had to, and this was a friend and I had to say, I can't endorse that book because as someone who is an advocate for sexual abuse victims, I just simply don't agree with that. Um, with that assessment, we have a King in power who asks for a Royal, for a subject who cannot say no, the power differential is there and then another thing that I noticed about the text, which may or may not be true, but it's an interesting thought, is that there's never mention of the fact that she and Uriah had children. And so when I interpreted and wrote her story as fiction based on the biblical account, um, I thought, wouldn't it be so devastating if perhaps she's in love with Uriah, Uriah and they want to have children and then she can't and suddenly she is raped and she is with child for the first time and all of the pain that would come up with that and um anyway i just there's just so much there uh the other thing that well, i take and notice and, and i'll let you just say the other thing was just the scripture is silent on her culpability it never nathan the prophet when he confronts david never says well that lady was bathing on the roof and you couldn't help yourself and none of that it, they always land the blame at david absolutely yeah and in fact when we we hear bathing i kind of think you know uh, some young thing in a jacuzzi. But in fact, that's no. not at all what's happening. The, the text makes clear she's doing her ritual purity, right? Yeah. And I got to thinking about this text. We're in uh, Jerusalem. Where's the closest water? I mean, she's not turning on a tap, mm -mm. right? She has to go carry the water. We don't know what the mikvah, the uh, ritual bathing uh, that is... Uh, in continual use even today among certain mm -hmm. Jewish groups. Um, we don't know what that would have looked like, although I did see a picture of like a big tub from the eighth, ninth or eighth century BC clay. So maybe she was something 
like that. It was just a big tub, you know, that you might, like we might call a hip bath, only smaller. But when you think about what, what would she have been wearing? Did she not have any clothes on? I mean, she's, she's doing her ritual purity after her menstruation. That's, that becomes important in the story so that you know that it's David's child. But, but nevertheless, she's, she's in that act being very righteous. Right. And then I, I also, I mean, I just, I kind of went off on this and I, um, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's an Old Testament professor who also started getting excited about this and then connected with another one of her uh, friends. But they started talking about what was the house like? Because we are imagining she's up on like this patio upstairs that's uh, uh, visible to everyone. But um, it may be that Bathsheba is not used to that kind of uh, structure, more like living in tents and not, not realizing that someone can actually look into where you, mm. where you are from above. Um, and so, you know, the, um, one of the analogies they gave was someone moves uh, to downtown, in, in downtown in a city, and they're, they come from the country where they just lived out on a country road. So the first night or two, they don't bother to pull their curtains when it gets dark because no one will see anyway, right? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, and so when you're talking about misunderstanding, I wonder if Bathsheba, she's just used to a different um, pattern, like even just structurally what her house was. We have to remember, as I said, she's not going to have running water. So whatever water she uses, which is very precious, she's not going to be splashing it all over. Anyway, just some of those other things that I think need to be part of the story uh, before people just impute uh, motives of seduction to Bathsheba. I, I love when Bible scholars start filling in the architecture for me. It's <laughs> always fun. And that's so cool. That's the one thing. I'm New Testament, you know, but I do envy my Old Testament friends who can, you know, play around in the dirt and dust and stones. <laughs> that was one thing that really, um, it was just so lovely to be in Israel and to see mikvahs and to, to realize just how integrated those were into Jewish life and how everyone would have had them. And, and, you know, whether it would have been on top of the roof or within, you know, the structure of the home, it's, it, as you said, she was cleansing herself from her monthly impurity and being righteous. Um, and David, and we also forget that David in the text wasn't, he was supposed to be off to war. So he also was, it could have been the other thing that I've read and some scholars have said that you could bathe in the middle of the day because everyone's off to work, so to speak. And he would have been off to war. So he, she, he noted, noticed her because he wasn't off to war. Um, right. And then we don't, yeah. we also don't see like, I can imagine, and in the story, I imagine this, like if King's officials came to me and said, you need to come with us, I would continually be asking what happened to my husband, what happened to my husband, because Uriah was one of his mighty men. And, and so just the fear of just that, and then being left alone in a castle where, you know, in the city of David, where you could scream, but even if you did, which wouldn't have probably be what she did because she would have known there would be nothing that you could do. No one was going to come to her aid. No one was going to defy the king. 
He had complete sovereignty over her. So this seems to me to be a way women in particular are often misunderstood. That is, women are misunderstood as sexual sinners, uh, while folks forget all the ways that women are sinned against. I would so agree. And we see a lot of this in the literature right now, looking back on purity culture of the 90s and how it the emphasis has always been on, it's all your fault. You need to dress a certain way without ever addressing the lust issue of the one who's objectifying the other. So um, why is it a woman's fault if someone is objectifying them? And therefore, it's always up to us to make sure we're acceptable in order to not cause our brother to stumble, which really is a very bad interpretation of those kinds of passages. That, In that case, when you cause someone to stumble, it's always to the weaker brother, but we never address the fact that they're being weak by doing it. So uh, I'll get off my little high horse on that, but <laughs> I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, another woman that you talk about that I don't hear much about at all, but I think probably does have a lot to teach us. And that is Leah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and she's a fascinating character because we see a lot of relational pain in her. And that's why I really love her story because I think a lot of us can relate to that. Um, she, I can, you know, I can imagine really wants to be loved and she, the text mentions it, you know, that she wants to be loved by her husband, but he's kind of angry and sour against her, even though it's not her fault that she's in the tent. Again, we have this, this situation where her father takes her into the tent. It's dark and she doesn't have the ability to say no um, in this patriarchal culture that she's in. She is considered property. And so, but she still has to bear the weight of that misunderstanding. She has to bear the weight of her father's actions um, as she interacts with her husband. But we see a lot of transformation in her and um, this kind of anger toward her sister or this kind of jealousy that they have back and forth between, well, that one can have children and well, that one's loved by the, by the husband and all of that. But we see kind of at the end, this kind of resolution is as they become the nation of Israel, as they leave Laban and they're off on their own, we begin to see a little more camaraderie and um, connection there. I wonder, could we jump from the Old Testament to the New and look at a couple of women in the New Testament? I don't want to cut you off on Leah, though, if you had more you were. Oh, no, no. There. But she's um, so helpful because I think there are women out there in the world who are broken by their circumstances and maybe broken in their marriages and are, you know, again, the subtitle of this book is about thriving. How do you thrive how do you learn how to live within your situation when your circumstances are so difficult? And I think that's speaking to a lot of women today where they're just, and again, this goes back to this idea of what does the culture around us say is thriving? What does the Bible say is thriving? And so I would, I would say that finding Jesus and staying near him, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, knowing that you're loved, even if no one else loves you, is a really powerful way to live. When we jump to uh, to the New Testament, um, you mentioned Phoebe, which is another name that is not uh, often mentioned and uh, probably should be mentioned more. 
I think a lot of Christians have never heard of her. That's right. She's just a, a character on the on Friends. Um, on Friends, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> Phoebe. So um, I actually had the opportunity to write a novel based on her life, and so that got me down this road of researching her. So writing her story in this book was relatively fun and easy for me because I had done so much research on her. But what I one of the things that I learned that I thought was fascinating is that typically when Paul or with it, anyone was sending a letter in this context in the New Testament church, the person who brought the letter was to know the sender so well that when they elocuted the letter, when they performed the letter, they would perform it as almost like an actor portraying the person that sent it. So they would they would know the inflection of Paul. They would know exactly where to emphasize. They would know who to give eye contact to when they were, you know, in the middle of Romans 12, which wouldn't have been called 12 at the time. It was just really long letter, very long winded letter by Paul. Um, but that to me is so fascinating. And that um, mo uh, many scholars, not all, but many scholars believe that because she's mentioned at the end of Romans, she was most likely the person to carry the book of Romans to Rome and therefore to elocute it or to perform it for the audience there. And so that just elevates her in my mind. Now, we won't know the side of heaven if that's true or not, but typically when Paul commends someone at the end of um, one of his letters, they are the carrier or he he um, sometimes will even say very explicitly that they're the carrier. But I just thought that was a fascinating little piece of information. Yeah, so she would, there are a number of uh, recent commentators who will talk about Phoebe being the first exegete of yeah, Romans. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so she's a theologian knowing Paul's thoughts and um, Romans is every theologian's favorite book. So yeah, it is. That's right. Yes, exactly. And uh, and she'd have to answer their questions um, mm -hmm. with with all of that. She also is a benefactor of Paul. Yes. And there's another woman who's also a benefactor in the but this in the Gospels, uh, Mary of Magdala mm -hmm. mentioned in Luke eight as someone who Jesus heals, uh, cast out seven demons from her. And she, out of her resources, uh, helps to support Jesus and, and the ministry. So you spend some time talking about her as a misunderstood woman. And yeah, she's kind of in the category of Bathsheba in terms of a list of <laughs> things that are misunderstood. <laughs> yes. Yes, she is. But she joins a couple other people who are part of funding Jesus's ministry. And I, I just think this, if we really, I mean, I'm super excited about this, but if we really think about it, like how Jesus was able to do what he was able to do because of this funding and how beautiful it is that in a culture that was, that did not necessarily dignify women, that women were behind the scenes providing the skeleton for Jesus to be able to do his message and to go to the places that he went to and to preach the gospel of the kingdom wherever he went. And how powerful that is. And we've had, you know, some misunderstanding of Mary of Magdala, maybe not in the context of, of where she was, but there was, um, I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head, but there was a misunderstanding in, in the beginning of who she was that they equated her with the prostitute. Um, that, Luke uh, 7. Yeah. Yes. I think it was the Pope finally in 500 who kind of made that connection, the uh, sinful woman in Luke 7, yes. Mary of Magdala in Luke 8, and connected her then with, uh, at the end of uh, 
Matthew and Mark, the unnamed woman who anoints Jesus right before his passion. So in one fell swoop, you wipe <laughs> out three distinct women yeah. and put them all together in one. Yeah, it was a brutal, it was, wasn't a good year for women. No, and that, I mean, that misunderstanding from that period of time when the Pope did that has stayed with us since. And it's taken scholarship from lately to just untangle those women from each other. And it's just so frustrating. But the beautiful thing that I love about her, and maybe this is where she's misunderstood as well, is just being the first witness to the resurrection and to be that first preacher of the gospel. How powerful is that? And how beautiful of Jesus to say, I know, I'm going to start my church now. And the first person that's going to really take this message is going to be this person who had been demonized. So here's, you know, the forces of darkness were upon her. She was definitely not in the kingdom of light. She was in the kingdom of darkness. She meets Jesus. He delivers her from the kingdom of darkness to the actual kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. And then she's the first proclaimer of the kingdom. Um, the moment he is resurrected, it's just beautiful um, it's a beautiful harmony that I see, and this is why I love the Bible so much. Infinite riches. Yep. Mary, as we get ready to wrap up, um, I am hoping you could reflect on your research and writing for this book and talk to us about which story uh, of which woman was hardest for you to tell. You know, I, I, I actually think, I think it's probably Eve. Um, mm. Because there's so much um, there's so much misunderstanding of even the story of the fall of humankind, where so much of that blame gets heaped on her. And yet, when we jump to the New Testament and we, you know, we hear Paul in in all of his epistles talk about this, you know, new Adam um, and the fall of humankind, and he he. He puts the blame on Adam. Adam's right there when it's happening. He's standing beside her, but mute. <laughs> and so um, she not only gets blamed by humanity, but she gets blamed by the, by Adam, who also blames God in this thing. You gave this woman to me. It's your fault, God. And she never did that. So in the in the narrative, she said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She actually told the truth about the situation. She she actually, in a way, repented of it by doing exactly what we're supposed to do when we repent, tell the truth and confess it. Um, and so there's just a lot of nuance there in that particular story that I think we miss. And, um, you know, I've heard plenty of sermons that kind of malign her and then use her as a reason why men and women are different. And it's just, it's, there's a whole bunch there and that's the whole beginning of the Bible. So I felt a huge responsibility and um, uh, insecurity of being able to unpack that story. But I think it's an important one to really ask intelligent questions of. Mm. I think uh, the kind of importance of Eve in our imaginations uh, as Christians, but also culturally, uh, has really, uh, it does elevate the importance of the story. And it's it's good to go back to it and see what the text actually says. Well, and I love too that, you know, she starts off without a name. She's just woman. 
And after the fall, that's when Adam names her Hava or Eve, which means breath. And just this like beautiful, like even there we see the redemptive hand of God that you're you're in taxonomy, like giraffe, woman, (laughs) aardvark. (laughs) She's taxonomized there. And then after the fall, she's actually given a name and then she gives birth to children. And there's this life that happens because of her. And um, we see just this beautiful redemption and the beginning of the kernel of that redemptive plan starting even in the naming of her. What do you hope, um, what do you hope your readers, because they're all, all of the listeners are going to get this book, I'm <laughs> <Yay>! sure. <laughs> um, yes, the uh, most misunderstood women of the Bible, what their stories can teach us about thriving. Um, what do you hope would be, or what would maybe you think the most important contribution you think this book makes for for uh, women who follow after Jesus today? I think two things. The first is my hope and prayer is they would fall in love with the scriptures with new eyes and just begin to just ask questions of the text um, and be informed by the spirit of what the implications of the the word of God have for our lives. And then second, that they would come away with this, with a toolkit of, okay, I've been misunderstood. I've got all this body of women in the word of God who have also been misunderstood. How now then shall I live? Um, one of the things I've learned over my the course of my life is that reputation management is not my job. Although in my insecurity, I like to uh, manage my reputation, but the Lord has often said to me, don't defend yourself. Just trust me for your reputation. Even if there are people out there saying all sorts of mean things, just be quiet and let me do that. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there aren't times we don't stand up for ourselves. There aren't times that we go out and advocate justice for other people. Absolutely. But there's also a time where it's really between you and the Lord for him to empower you and to give you the strength to endure someone else's opinion of you. And ultimately, that the opinion that matters the most is the Lord who created you, who loves you, who's for you, whose image you bear. And that is the number one thing that will help you to thrive after you've been misunderstood. Because everybody could misunderstand your heart, but he knows you. He's died for you. He loves you. He gives you the strength to keep going on. Amen. Amen and amen. We are known. Yes. And love. Yep. Thank you so much, Mary, for coming on and talking with us about your new book, The Most Misunderstood Women of the Bible. I'm excited to, uh, to see it out in print. That'll be wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on The Alabaster Jar. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Mary DeMuth, you can pre-order her new book, The Most Misunderstood Women of the Bible, using the link in today's episode description. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of The Alabaster Jar.